Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You brave souls who came out on this cold winter day in Colorado, what a deal, huh? Well, it's just beginning. Yeah, it's just beginning. So we're excited about that, but uh, we'll make it through this winter like we have every winter by the grace of God. Great. Well, I'm going to talk about Hanukkah. We're in the season of Hanukkah, and so we're going to kick that off and uh, run into it with uh, great joy and great celebration. So I've entitled this Hanukkah, the story of perseverance. So I don't know if we have slides. See if we have slides. No? Well, there it is. Bada boom, bada bing. Okay. Hanukkah, the story of perseverance. We're living in an error, era that violently rages against Israel, the Jewish people, and Bible-believing Christians. Our way of life is under attack. The hate-filled terror we are witnessing in Israel is spreading all around the globe. This is not new. We've been here before. It's played out over and over again throughout our history. Hanukkah is one of those stories of the terror that came to us under the Greek empire. The lessons of this story contain the very truths that will give us strength to persevere, to defend our way of life, our people, and our nations today. Fear not. God is with us. Happy Hanukkah. So the theme of Jewish holidays is simply this. They attacked us. We won. Let's eat. That's basically it, right? Hanukkah best illustrates this theme. But where is Hanukkah mentioned in the Bible, right? Many Christians are shocked to discover that Hanukkah is in the New Testament. Jesus was not only in Jerusalem for Hanukkah, he also fulfills it, brings about the fullness of its meaning in revealing who he was. And this text of Hanukkah is found in John chapter 10 and verse 23. It states this, now Hanukkah, need my slide person again? Okay, let's go to the next slide. There we go. It says, now Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, was taking place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking around in the temple inside the open porch of Solomon. Now, most translations just simply say, now the Feast of Dedication was taking place. And because it says Feast of Dedication, most Christians never catch the references in regard to Hanukkah. In fact, how do you say dedication in Hebrew? Hanukkah. Hanukkah means dedication. That's why some translators will actually put Hanukkah right there in the text for us to see. This translation uh, simply does that. So, the big question is, why is Jesus there during this feast? Again, we miss the import of his presence during Hanukkah because we fail to understand the backdrop and the context of the passage. Think about it for a minute. Where is Jesus' ministry base? Galilee. Jesus of Galilee. It's up in Galilee in the north. 
of, of Israel, where Jesus' ministry base is, that's where he lives, that's where his disciples are, that's where they do their work up in Galilee. That's significant when we think about this because he's down here during Hanukkah in Jerusalem. Yeah. So what's that all about? For him to come down is significant. In fact, we find that he usually comes down during the pilgrimage feasts. We see him down to Jerusalem during Passover. We see him again during Sukkot. And then he goes back up to Galilee. But he makes his way down to the pilgrimage festivals. Keep in mind, Hanukkah is a non-Mosaic civil festival. It's not one of the Mosaic festivals. Yet Jesus makes his way down. And the significance is, it's winter time. It's winter time. Do you know how long the journey is from where his base of ministry is in Galilee down to Jerusalem? And, and no Ubers, okay? If you weren't very wealthy, you walked. You, you, you know, and that's probably what Jesus did. The walk from Galilee to Jerusalem in the winter it's far more arduous in the winter. That's the rainy season. It's estimated to take, if you're walking eight hours a day, four to five days. Now, are you going to make that trek down to Jerusalem for no reason? Of course not. You're going to go if something very important to you is occurring and you want to be there. This tells us there was a great sacrifice on Jesus's part to make it down to Jerusalem for this non-mosaic civil festival. You say, well, maybe he never went down there. Maybe he stayed in Jerusalem. You know, Sukkot was earlier and it was in Jerusalem. So maybe he just stayed in Jerusalem until Hanukkah. Again, that's another sacrifice. You know how many weeks between Sukkot and Hanukkah? 10. That means he's staying with different people for 10 weeks down in Jerusalem because he wants to go to Hanukkah. How many people are going to travel somewhere, stay there for 10 weeks so you can go to some festival? You know, who's going to do that? I mean, either way you slice it, and Jesus made a great sacrifice to be in Jerusalem at Hanukkah. We cannot gloss over this text. We cannot just set, set it aside and say, oh, doesn't really mean much. So he was there for Hanukkah. What's, you know, not a big deal. No, 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 no. This story is written for us because it's important. And not only important to Jesus, but important to us. So Hanukkah, dedication. What is this all about, right? Let's get the backdrop. Hanukkah begins with an ancient prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. We're going to jump to Daniel chapter 8. You can turn there. This week, we'll focus on the prophecy of Hanukkah. Next week, we'll look, take a look at how it was, how it came to pass, or how it was fulfilled. And that's the book of Maccabees. So we'll get down there next week. And then following th that week, uh, we'll look at uh, the festival of Hanukkah in the days of Jesus and why he was in Jerusalem during that time. So let's jump back to Daniel chapter 8. I'm just going to begin reading this ancient prophecy concerning Hanukkah. There's a lot to read here. I have to read it. It's the backdrop to the story. And so without it, we don't really understand what John 10 is all about. So I'll just pick up the reading in verse number 1, and we'll read down through this chapter. 
In the third year, this is the book of Daniel. In the third year of King uh, Belshazzar's rule, a vision came to me. Daniel, sometime after the earlier vision, vision I had, I saw this vision, and as I experienced it, I was in a walled city of Susa in the province of Elam by the Yule Canal. When I lifted up my eyes, I suddenly saw a ram with two horns standing in front of the canal. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. Keep in mind, we've been talking about this <clears throat> in the book of Revelation. And, and last week we had to pull, we had to pull that video. So we, we've been getting dinged on YouTube. They're, they're breathing down our necks and I think they want to censor us. I wonder why, right? Okay, so had to pull that. So we, we didn't really get to put a bow on it like I wanted to, um, but suffice it to say, we're in apocalyptic literature still. Daniel is apocalyptic literature, just like the book of Revelation. In fact, what we were teaching on from the book of Revelation is also a lot of it rooted in Daniel's prophecies. So we're still on course, okay, making the same points that we've been making for weeks now. We'll just pick it up. Okay, so this is a vision, which means in the vision, things are symbolic. The imagery is meant to convey a truth that, that is seen in the imagery or communicated through the imagery. So, both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. The higher one came up after the other one. I saw a ram goring west, north, and south. No animal could resist the ram, and no one could stop it, rescuing others from its power. The ram did whatever it pleased. It became powerful. I was trying to understand this when suddenly a he-goat came from the west, crossing the entire earth but not touching the ground. Between the goat's eyes was a horn that was a sight to see. The he-goat came to the ram that had two horns, the one I'd seen standing in front of the canal. The he-goat charged the ram in powerful anger. I saw the he-goat approach the ram. It was enraged at the ram and attacked it, shattering the ram's two horns. The ram couldn't resist the he-goat. The he-goat threw the ram on the ground and trampled on it. No one could rescue the ram from the he-goat's power. The he-goat became even greater, but at the height of its power, its large horn snapped. In its place, four horns, each a sight to see, came up toward the four winds of heaven. A single very small horn came out of the one of the four horns. It grew bigger and bigger, stretching toward the south, the east, the beautiful country. It grew as high as the heavenly forces until it finally threw some of them and some of the stars down to the earth. Then it trampled on them. Remember what we were reading about in the book of Revelation and the imagery there? Yeah, you have a third of the stars of heaven thrown down. The imagery there was the great red dragon. We have some similar features here in this story. This vision is about world powers, just like it is in the book of Revelation. They represent kingdoms and kings at war with one another. And so uh, we're stepping into this, this story with this incredible vision that really has to do with the empires uh, that Daniel is a part of, at least 
two of them, maybe three, depending on when you place him in his uh, birth and death. So let's go on. Speaking of this little horn too, this little horn that comes up one out of one of the four horns. So there's a big mighty horn, it gets broken, out of it comes four smaller horns. Out of one of those horns come, comes another horn that's even smaller, okay? It comes out of one of these empires. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But if you move back one chapter into Daniel chapter 7, you also have some similar visions taking place. And you have another little horn, but that little horn comes out of the fourth empire. We're going to look at this little horn that seemingly comes out of the third empire. Very important to note those differences. Verse 11, this little horn. It grew as high as the very leader of those forces, taking the daily sacrifice away from him and overturning his holy place. Taking away the daily sacrifice that clues us in has something to do with the temple and the daily sacrifice. And it takes it from him, overturning the holy place, a reference to the temple. Next verse says, in an act of rebellion, another force will take control of the daily sacrifice. It will throw truth to the ground and will succeed in everything it does. The characteristics of this king and uh, the people involved and the temple are all surrounded with rebellion, lawlessness, tyranny, There's no regard for the truth. Everything is brought about through lies and falsehoods. That's how the enemy works. If you remember what we talked about the last couple of weeks, he's the father of lies. He deceives. He lies about everything. He turns things upside down through ideologies that have been enforced through legislation. And of course, um, and and then using his military power and authority to to bring those pieces of legislation to bear. Verse 13, the vision goes on. I then heard a certain holy one speaking. A second holy one said to the first one, how long will this vision last? The one concerning the daily sacrifice, the desolating rebellion, and the handing over of the sanctuary and its forces to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. That's going to be 1,150 uh, uh, evenings and mornings. You have an evening sacrifice and a morning sacrifice. So you divide the 2,300, you end up with 1,150. It's about three years and about two months. Then the sanctuary will be restored. That's the vision. That's the vision. has to be decoded has to be interpreted, right? So, thank God for Daniel the interpreter, right? That's one of his gifts. So let's look at the interpretation. Verse 15, Now I, Daniel, needed help understanding the vision I saw. Suddenly, standing in front of me was someone who looked like a man. I then heard a human voice coming out of the center of the Ule Canal. I called out. It called out. Gabriel Help this person understand what he has seen. Gabriel is one of the archangels in Judaism. So it's a very powerful uh, um, uh, angelic being who has come in the form of a man 
uh, to aid Daniel in this interpretation of the vision. Gabriel helped this person understand what he has seen. Verse 17, Gabriel approached me. I was terrified when he came. I fell on my face to the ground. Gabriel said to me, know this, human one, the vision is for the end time. As soon as he said this to me, I fell into a trance, my face still on the ground. Then Gabriel touched me and set me up on my feet. Just real quick, when it says the vision is for the end time, it doesn't qualify which end time. The end time of the empire that Daniel's a part of now, the end time of the one that's coming, or the one that's following, or the end time of all end times at the end of time, right? Doesn't say anything about that. Got to work the context to understand what the reference point is. We'll get down to that. Verse 19. He said, now I'm going to tell you what will happen during the time of doom that is coming. Because at the appointed time, there will be an end. The two-horned ram you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. So right away, we see the animals, like we do in Revelation, they represent kingdoms, geopolitical powers. In this vision, the Media Persian Empire. That's why it has two horns. They joined together and became an empire. These, these two nations. We call it the Medo-Persia Empire. The long hair he goat is the king of Greece. And the big horn between its eyes is the first king. Who's the first king of Greece? Alexander the Great, the greatest military uh, 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 general probably that has ever lived in human history. And this Medo-Persian empire, no match for him. No one's a match for him. No one is. Okay. The horn that snapped so the four came up in its place means that four kingdoms will come from one nation. But these four won't have the strength of the first one. Then verse 23. When their kingship nears its end and their sins are almost complete... A king will step forward. He will be stern and a master of deception. This is the little horn. It's in reference to the little horn that's going to come up. And that is going to be the, the persona of focus. The story of Hanukkah surrounds this wicked, deceiving king. He's going to be a master of deception. Verse 24. At the height of his power, he will wreak unbelievable destructions. He will succeed in all he does. He will destroy both the mighty and the people of the holy ones. Along with his cunning, verse 25, along with his cunning, he will succeed by using deceit. I mean, it's just what empires do. When you have empires on the scene and you have elite leaders who share in that power and wealth, typically, typically they become tyrants and they rule and reign through deception. Nothing new under the sun. I 
Along with his cunning, he will succeed by using deceit. In his own mind, he will be great. In a time of peace, he will bring destruction on many, opposing even the supreme leader. Who's that a reference to? The supreme leader. Well, if you're dealing with heavenly language, just like you have in the book of Revelation, it's not just a natural earthly event. There's usually something going on in the heavenlies too. And this particular king even wants to somehow overthrow the king of kings. The supreme leader is in reference to the Messiah himself. And then it states, but he will be broken and not by a human hand. In other words, he's not going to die in a battle, in war. He's going to die in a way that has nothing to do with those people around him. And that's the vision, and that's the interpretation. It finishes with this. Now, this vision of evening and morning, which has been announced, is true. But you must steal it up, or you must seal it up, because it is for days far in the future. Then I, Daniel, was overwhelmed and felt sick for days. When I finally got up and went about the king's business, I remained troubled by the vision and couldn't understand it. So, Daniel lived approximately 375 years before this comes to pass. That's almost four centuries before this prophecy comes to pass. And it comes to pass in the years 167 to 160. It's about a seven-year period where everything that Daniel has here actually comes to pass. We're going to look at that next week. It is just staggering to consider how accurate this prophecy is. It's so accurate that some uh, theologians will basically say, Daniel didn't write the book of Daniel. Someone else wrote it, and they wrote it after the Maccabean event. That's the only way you can have it as accurate as you can get it, right? They had to have written it after the fact because it's just too accurate. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe Daniel wrote his book, and maybe this was a prophetic word that God revealed, and it all came to pass. So this account of the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecies can be found in the two books of the Maccabees. For next week, as we come into our series on Hanukkah, it's important that you read the first five chapters of the first book of the Maccabees. That's the essential read. That tells the whole story first in a nutshell, and then it's going to go ahead and fill in a lot of stuff in the rest of that book and the second book. But please, if you have a chance this week, the first book of Maccabees, first five chapters, phenomenal. What a great read. And you'll see the fulfillment of what Daniel had prophesied comes to pass. So in conclusion, the story of Hanukkah is thoroughly biblical and meaningful. It begins as an ancient prophecy that is fulfilled about 170 years before Jesus is born. It was celebrated as an annual civil festival from that time until it was fulfilled. I'm sorry, from the time that it was fulfilled all the way to the days of Jesus in John chapter 10. And of course, continuing all the way to this day. So they had about 170 Hanukkah festivals annually 
eight-day festival of Hanukkah for 170 years approximately before Jesus shows up. They had it really refined, changed some of the meanings, gave it a different symbol, and it becomes this huge event every year in Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus says, yeah, I think I'll travel on foot four or five days because I want to be there. Or I'm going to stay 10 weeks in Jerusalem after Sukkot because I want to be there. Our job is to figure out why was Hanukkah so important to Jesus? Why did he make it a point to be there? What is that all about? I would posit this, that Jesus is not only coming to fulfill all of the biblical festivals, he will even fulfill this non-Mosaic festival, which was so dear and so meaningful to his people. By the first century, it became known as the Festival of Light, the Festival of Light. They no longer called it Hanukkah. The number one phrase for this event was the Festival of Light. Interesting, isn't it? We'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. Suffice it to say, the story inspires courage and faithfulness in times of deception and lawlessness and persecution. The three main takeaways from Hanukkah are found in our maxim. Embrace truth, live truth, share truth. Those are the themes of Hanukkah. So next week, the fulfillment. Until then, happy Hanukkah, Shabbat Shalom.